there. I'm Dr. Gabe Lowe, and welcome to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. This is a show that is less interested in answering life's difficult questions and more interested in the process of wrestling with them. This podcast is a forum to celebrate the messiness that makes us human. It is a place to invite the unanswerable questions because often it is precisely these types of questions that push us to dig deeper, to think harder, and to refine our approach to life. So, if you get to the end of the episode and you still have lots of questions, then I've done my job. I invite you on the pursuit of no answers. Welcome to the finale of the Hard Questions No Answers podcast season one. My guest for this episode is someone very special to me, and I am so glad he is helping me to close out this season. He is currently the English pastor at the Chinese Christian Church of Thousand Oaks and co-founder of the Enlightened Mental Health Ministry, a resource ministry whose goal is to encourage, educate, and empower individuals and families facing mental illness. He received his Doctor of Ministry in Spiritual Formation from Azusa Pacific University and is also a certified spiritual director. Please enjoy this conversation with my dad, Rev. Dr. Curtis Lowe. So this is uh, the season finale of Hard Questions, No Answers, season one. And uh, for this last episode, I wanted to do something really special. And so uh, I have with me here uh, my dad, Curtis Lowe, Dr. Curtis Lowe, <laughs> who's a, uh, a pastor. Uh, and today we're talking about mental health, uh, very broad topic, but specifically as it relates to some of the interactions that you've had throughout your role as a pastor. So do you mind just starting off talking about what kinds of roles as a pastor have you had throughout your life? And in what ways have you come into contact with um, different issues surrounding mental health? Uh, well, hi, Gabe. <laughs> the, <laughs> hi, Dad. Um, the, um... The issues of, of or the places of service have been started with my internships in San Diego uh, at a large uh, community church, and then doing an internship at a smaller uh, church in Los Angeles, a Chinese church. And then after that, uh, moving on into uh, doing work as a youth pastor, a Christian education director, and then eventually as a uh, adult pastor of uh, two different churches and then as far as mental illness that's that's really been a life story for me so I began experiencing my own mental illness issues uh, at about the age of 19 and it has continued in different pathways there's been times of either remission or even healing uh, times where things are good and then it's gone back and forth and there's throughout the years there's been times where it's been very difficult and have experienced uh, depression in particular over the years. And then the initial issues that I struggled with when I was 19 was obsessive compulsive disorder. So um, those have been personally the, the ones that have affected me. And then um, in, even in marriage. So we found out that um, my, my wife had bipolar and we saw the signs of that early on in marriage. We didn't know what it was. Uh, but it wasn't until actually 2002 when we were married in, in what, 1985 um, so that it was many years of marriage before she actually 
was uh, diagnosed and started to get treated for bipolar, and now she's doing fine. So those are sort of the personal stories for myself. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, I I know a lot of these stories, uh, obviously from from my perspective as a son watching my parents, but for for you and mom, that has been quite a, a personal thing. How do you think that some of your own personal experiences with that have um, helped you understand mental health better in terms of your role as a pastor? I think, first of all, it helps you understand the pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just, I think that's really the, the part that connects with people is if you say, I understand what you're going through, but you haven't gone through what they're going through. Uh, you're, you're saying a nice thing, but people don't necessarily feel connected to you. But when you can actually tell them the stories that I was so depressed that I tried to take my own life, um, that they, they realize like, well, okay, so maybe he does understand something that I'm going through. So I think that even from the very beginning, uh, though I wasn't at that time aware of anything about what I was going to do in the future, I remember my first therapist talking to him and saying, well, I, this time's horrible in my life. I, I don't know what's going on, but I, I, I know that when it's over, at least I'll be able to understand what people are going through when they go through depression, which is what I was really struggling with at that time. Mm-hmm. So I know that that's been a, a consistent theme in all of my discussions with people is they, they find comfort, connection. Um, they find that they can trust me. It feels like a safer place for them because of what I can tell them that I've gone through. Yeah. And as you alluded to, when mom was experiencing some of her things, you guys didn't really have a whole lot of language to understand what her diagnosis was or or what she was experiencing. Uh, So can you talk a little bit about what that learning process was like? Um, You know, who were some helpful people that were able to diagnose and teach you about what what was going on? Uh, and, And how did you get some of that information about uh, what mental health was? Because uh, I'm also guessing that um, seminary didn't necessarily, you know, teach you about uh, mental health uh, diagnoses. Um, I don't know if any of your seminary teaching um, addressed that, but, you know, my guess is that, you know, you, you experienced it firsthand and then you probably had to find some good educational sources. So I think that the first time that we experienced this was the second year of our marriage and we went to go see a therapist and mom was already starting to have symptoms of bipolar and we didn't know what it was. And in 19, this was 1987, very little I think was known about bipolar back then. It was called manic depressive disorder. And for whatever reason, this is a very established therapist. In fact, he graduated, I think, from your school, Gabe. (laughs) But he didn't recognize it. He didn't. He never said, I think, you know, there's something going on with Carol. He thought we were having marriage problems. So he began treating it like a marriage problem. And of course, since it wasn't a marriage problem, it didn't help. Um, It did improve some things with our communication and our marriage, but it didn't improve anything regarding mom's mental health or my mental health going through what, you know, what she was dealing with. And it really wasn't until 1993 so half a dozen years later, that mom was experiencing the downside 
a bipolar, the depressive side, and it was so severe that she was willing to seek help and get help. And a therapist that she was seeing identified that mom had signs of, of bipolar and sent her to a psychiatrist. So, so we went to a psychiatrist and I think that it's there that we began to really start to build a vocabulary for bipolar and then start talking more openly about other issues of mental illness, including my own. So these were the things that sort of helped us as painful as they were. And they were really a hit and miss process uh, for those first half dozen years. And so we experienced a lot of pain without any idea why things were happening. Uh, actually, it hurt more to identify it as a marriage problem because then we're looking at it from the wrong uh, perspective. And, and then it, it affected our marriage, it affected ministry. So, uh, but we're grateful, like, you know, because of that experience, we've become much more sensitive to what other people go through when, when they don't yet have a, a vocabulary for mental illness. Yeah. And so it's hard because I, I, I know a little bit more behind the scenes than uh, with some of my other guests. And so I know from seeing the ways that, that you've talked about it. And um, I remember going up to Northern California when that was one of the first times that you and mom shared your story with, with the church. And so I know that you and mom have been very intentional with uh, using the experiences and using the knowledge that you have to talk with other people about it. Have there been any other really prominent ways that you feel like you've been able to use your experiences to encourage or to, to help other people going through mental health issues? Yeah, we have always wanted to be open about it. I think that that's just my personality. I, maybe I talk too much sometimes um, because I, I have such a need for affirmation or to find answers. Uh, but when we began talking about it, it just led to the next opportunity. And so it began when a friend, a pastor friend of mine knew that I struggled with depression and he is, it's a church you're referring to up in the Bay Area. And there were staff people that were going through mental health problems, particularly depression. And so he called and asked if I would do a time of meeting with his staff and even do a workshop for the church. So mom and I went up to the Bay Area and did our, our first workshop on that. And it was, it was really well received. And we remembered like how impactful it was for these people to know that a pastor has gone through it. Uh, that mm -hmm. it's, it's like, you know, mental illness is no respecter of anybody. And it, it happens to Christians, it happens to non-Christians, it happens to children, it happens to old people, mm -hmm. it, it happens to pastors, it, it happens to um, people who have no religious experience. So it just happens and it, it's painful. And, and so when others in the church found out that, you know, here's his pastor and his wife and they're still try, doing ministry and can actually, you know, function, that that they were very intrigued and had a lot of questions and it started to help. Then years later, uh, again, we were asked to speak at another church uh, on the topic of depression. And again, it was just really well received. And at that time, 
I wondered if mom and I were supposed to have a ministry um, regarding mental illness. But, you know, we talked to some friends about it and, and we just felt like, no, this was more of a, um, just a subheading of our ministry. It wasn't going to be a primary issue. So we never really advertised. We never went out and talked about it. Uh, but it, but when we started to deal with more problems and, you know, particularly family problems that we, we wanted to have a place where we could talk to people and not from the point of view of, of giving advice, but receiving it again and, and being helped instead of being the helper. And so that was when we moved out here to Thousand Oaks. A little over three years ago, and we we're just looking for a new community, a mental health community, who could share our burdens, share our pain, give us a safe place to process. And we couldn't find a faith-based small group like what we had in Orange County. And Orange County had a number of faith-based uh, support groups for family members and for people dealing with mental illness, but not out here in Ventura County. So, um, so we didn't know what to do. But we, we thought, well, maybe we could start one. We kind of know what they do uh, since we've been in it, but we, we just didn't know how to begin. So we started talking to people. And the more we talked to people, the more they said, you know, we need to hear this. The churches need to hear this about the problems of mental illness and the problems and the needs for mental health. And so one thing led to another. And really, truly, we believe it was just God's working in our lives to start a, a ministry that we call Enlightened Mental Health. And we had our first seminar back in 2018. And then, <laughs> so we, we began by wanting to get help, but we ended up again being the helpers. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, we, we began this seminar and it was again, really well received by the larger community. Mm-hmm. And we had a number of churches think the first year we had over 30 churches join us and we were able to share and again we're just getting word back we need to hear more of this we need to learn more and so we've been gratified to know that other churches and other people have taken the discussion of mental health and mental illness in their communities uh, more deeply and further along because of our discussion through yeah. enlightened mental health um, so you know we have tried to start a support group, which we did uh, after the first seminar. Um, but it honestly, it's just a little harder to be in a support group where you're the leaders. And, and then also um, it, the support group is uh, mostly, you know, through our church. And so it's still hard to, to be completely vulnerable um, mm-hmm. when you're the pastor and uh, you don't know how that might affect the people who are part of your congregation who are there. So mm-hmm. we're not mm-hmm. quite there. We're not really in a full place of safety yet. Yeah. Yeah. That you have another role that you're trying to balance as being pastor and pastor's wife that you can't fully just be a participant. Exactly. Yeah. And at the same time, wanting to give to others. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where the joy comes in knowing that there is a, a redemption from our own sorrows and sadness and brokenness mm-hmm. that it can help others. But then at the same time, maybe that's a little bit of the price we still pay. If sure. We don't have our own, 
our own place yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I do want to talk about enlightenment a little bit more, but I want to pause and back up a little bit um, because, you know, mental health has been on your radar a long time and you've been in ministry for several decades. And so I want to ask about some of the challenges that you've observed in terms of being able to talk about mental health within Christian contexts, whether it's with other Christians or uh, in seminary or in with other churches, um, that you know, I think nowadays it's maybe a little bit better than it used to be where we have more language, people are more open about talking about it, but uh, I know it wasn't always that way. So can you talk a little bit about um, either historically or um, as you've observed, um, you know, what are some of the challenges that you see uh, when it comes to Christians talking about mental health um, or talking about it within church or Christian contexts? Um, you know, what are some of the barriers or what, is, what are some of the uh, difficulties that people have? The barriers, I think, maybe, you know, just humanly speaking is naivety. I remember the first time, again, um, in second year of marriage, and not only did the therapist not identify mom's illness, the church didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, the church saw the problems, they just didn't know what to do. And so it made it, obviously, there's, there's no discussion if you don't have a vocabulary. So you use the vocabulary you have, which is, we got to pray more, or is this a satanic attack, or um, do you really have marriage problems? So you talk about what you do know, and and then if it's not in the area that actually is, is not talking truthfully about what you're dealing with, you really are lost. And we were fortunate that we were able to experience a reprieve from the higher level symptoms that mom had. And for whatever reason, she started to get a little better. And, and then in that time, all it was was just, we just don't talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. But when it came back and we are now in a, a different church, we're in a Chinese church now and it's taboo. You, you, it's, there's two issues that are now fighting against speaking the truth about mental illness. One is that um, in Chinese culture, you don't talk about your problems. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's taboo. And then in church culture, at back then, you know, 1990, there was like a feeling like mental illness is really a, a faith problem. It's not a, it's not a health problem. And so you don't talk about it there either because you don't want, you don't want people to go, well, the pastor has a faith problem. That's why, you know, he and his wife are struggling with depression. Yeah. Um, so we just don't talk about it. And mm -hmm. we, we carry that um, to fast forward you know, three years ago when we came back to Thousand Oaks and we're back in the exact same church that we were in 25 years before, it's totally different. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the biggest reason that we were able to talk about mental illness is that the Chinese pastor before he was a pastor was a uh, psychiatrist, psychologist. And so he totally understood the, the reality that Christians have health problems in their brain. He understood it as a brain illness. And so we could talk about it with him and we were able to talk about it with the church. And, and gradually that allowed for more discussion 
And then of course, when we started the seminar, it, it became something that people were, were sort of jumping on, you know, saying, you know, how can we help? How we see depression in other people. We, we see strange behaviors in our children or in my mom or, you know, an aunt or uncle. What is this? What could it be? So, so things have changed a lot in 25 years, mm-hmm. but, but you have to talk about it. I think that really is the, the key thing is you, you have to take a risk and, and, and learn through your mistakes as well. Yeah. Yeah. And coming back to Enlighten, this ministry that, um, that has blossomed over the last couple of years, what are some of the things that you've learned as you've now taken this different project on where before you and mom were, were hesitant to, you know, quote unquote, start a, a ministry about it. Now you guys have, um, you know, what are some of the things that you have learned as you've tackled this, this new challenge? Well, we learned that we don't know a lot. <laughs> uh, and so our, our, our ministry is not a ministry where we create materials or we have any type of authoritative word on mental illness. Our ministry is a resource ministry. Uh, we do what helped us. We get people in touch with things that we hope will encourage them. Mm-hmm. We do, I think maybe our greatest um, blessing to other people is we start by talking about it, we help to reduce stigma mm-hmm. so that they can talk about it. And and I think that this has been the, the, the area that we feel no matter what we do, as long as we talk about it, we're helping to reduce stigma, even if we're wrong, mm-hmm. at least we're talking about it. The, the second thing is it's been a great encouragement to people mm-hmm. because so many people who are dealing with it felt so alone, mm-hmm. feel so like there's no help. Then people don't understand. Uh, the The church is still not real far into understanding mental illness and, and mental health. I think during COVID, we're understanding it much more uh-huh. because it's in the news. It's, it's very obvious. Like, you know, people have been seeking spiritual help for their emotional problems throughout COVID and the stress that we're all going through. So this has been good. Uh, so education, encouragement, and, and just giving a word of, of um, like a little bit of understanding. So though we don't understand a lot, you know, we do know what is bipolar. We do know what's major depressive disorder. We do know what are personality disorders. We do know what schizophrenia. We, we are able to, to talk to people intelligently enough to help encourage them to go get appropriate help. Yeah. And one of the things that seems to be coming up as you're talking both in your story and in some of the stories uh, that you're alluding to with other people is this uh, idea of loneliness, of it's not just a health issue, but uh, it can often be a, a social challenge as well, uh, where either people might not understand what, what somebody is going through. Uh, and it sounds like also for for you and mom, there's also sort of a, a loneliness in the role that you guys have taken up where um, you've chosen to be in this leadership position where your role is to provide some guidance uh, as opposed to uh, just being a recipient or just being a participant. So 
so two questions, you know, one, how, how do you try to address the loneliness that you see with, with other people? And, and you've talked about it a little bit, but how, how do you try to address specifically that piece of loneliness? Uh, and how have you and mom tried to address the loneliness that you guys experience? Loneliness is very personal um, dilemma in my own life. Growing up as an only child and not enjoying it, I felt very lonely. Then when mental illness hit at 19, I my friends like kept their distance from me and and they didn't know what to do. They didn't they didn't do it out of meanness, but they may have done it partly out of fear. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And and I felt more lonely. Like what's wrong with me? Why are they normal and I'm not? So from a personal point of view, loneliness has been something that I just have to work through. It's, 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 it's part of my growing up issues. And mm-hmm. it's something that I, I just will probably deal with until I die. Um, so, but when you have mental illness, it exacerbates it. It makes it much worse. And, and so I think that the church and society has made it harder on people because we've labeled them as crazies or as weird or as unsociable or as dangerous. I remember there was a, a young man in our church who came and he would just wear a hoodie, you know, and um, he would sit in the back of the church and he'd put his head down throughout the service and he'd just sit there and, and people wouldn't talk to him. They were afraid of him. Uh, but as a few of us began to converse with him, we found out he had a mental illness. And he knew he had a mental illness. So we were able to have discussion. We were able to just talk about it. And I think that helped him not feel lonely. I mean, he was going to church. He was looking for, for something to help mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. So the, the loneliness is so real. It, it is. I don't think I, I've talked to anybody in depth who is dealing with mental illness, either as a caregiver or as a person who has it, who doesn't still struggle with loneliness. So it, it may not be something that necessarily goes away, but I think that you build community and, and that may be sort of seem to be contradictory or paradoxical, but you build community through loneliness. Mm-hmm. And you and I have spoken about the book that meant so much to both of us. Um, from Henry now and and the wounded healer when he talks about loneliness as like the Grand Canyon and that there's this deep wound in our life but God uses it to make something beautiful and there's there's other books on loneliness um, that I've read that have helped me to deal with it because they all talk about the fact that they're struggles in life or their mental illness led to this feeling of being isolated, of feeling like nobody understood, nobody cared, there's no help. It's just always gonna be this way. Mm-hmm. And so the, the loneliness is very um, tangible to people. So it's something that we can talk about and something that we can share and in the sharing we, we alleviate some of the loneliness, but, but we, it never is fully removed. 
like what you said in terms of the paradox of even though it is extremely painful to go through that loneliness, uh, often that's what gets the ball rolling in terms of building up that community that that we're all craving, whether we're experiencing mental health ourselves or uh, vicariously through somebody else or, or we know somebody else. And for you in your role as a, a pastor, I think it's unique and even unique for my role as a therapist, where I think people come to you as, as their pastor uh, and they're, you know, perhaps struggling with uh, mental health or it doesn't even need to be mental health, but uh, they're struggling with something and they're looking to you for for some sort of guidance as a spiritual leader, um, and so can you talk a little bit about how you how you approach that role that you have in people's life? As even if you might not feel like it is authoritative, or or, or you might sort of shy away from that word, people are looking to you as an authoritative person who is a leader, and so how do you? embrace your role as a pastor, you know, when people come to you? One of the things that we do have is we have a a resource list and we don't publish that because we don't want people to just look at the list and and just sort of, you know, close their eyes and pick a therapist. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We we try to find uh, a therapist that has the, some background that might be appropriate for that person. And that's sort of what we do is, is we do talk to people, we do listen. Um, and it's actually um, not only just our own church. So since other churches maybe don't talk about mental illness, when they find out that there's one who does, they'll call us and they hear about us or somebody will tell somebody else. And so we'll get these phone calls from people uh, looking for resources, looking for help, looking for understanding. So, so we try to match as best as we can. And I don't want to make it sound like we do this a lot. It, it, it's really just happened a few times, but enough times to know it's significant mm-hmm. that we're able to get people in touch. Um, there's a, a, a church that um, is in the nearby city near us. And a friend of theirs came to our first seminar when they themselves were dealing with mental health issues in their church their friend said, hey, you know, there's this pastor of a church in Thousand Oaks and they had a seminar. So this third party, they called us and we were able to help them start their ministry um, of mental health. There was another pastor who heard about Carol and I doing this ministry, who's also Chinese. Uh, He's up in the Bay Area and, and he knows that there's a huge need for mental health discussion in the Chinese church in the Bay Area. And it's such a taboo subject. So he contacted us and we were able to help him start a seminar, um, a ministry up in the Bay Area. Um, and on a smaller level, there's been churches like there's one nearby who called us. <laughs> uh, they felt like um, there was a mental illness problem in their church and they wanted to know if I would help, you know, those people who were dealing with it, deal with it. Um, and the, the funny thing is that it was it was one of their pastors. Uh, but, um, you know, we've got they, this guy. They gave, yeah, they gave us the, we gave him the, we gave him our name that he never called. And so it's, you know, but we were able to help somebody else in their church um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we, we, we were willing to talk about it. 
Yeah. We're yeah. able to talk about it. We're not afraid to, even if we don't have the answers, we're, we're not afraid to say, you know, I'm really sorry, I don't have the answers, but I want you to know at least you're not weird. You're, you're not abnormal. This is, this is something that affects so many people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think it's really cool to hear how even if you haven't necessarily advertised yourself in that way, I think it really speaks to how hungry and thirsty people are for this kind of information or connection or help that is just pulling people towards you guys because you're, you're willing to talk about it. Uh, you've talked a little bit already about some of the unique challenges that Asian churches or specifically Chinese churches have around mental health. And, and you mentioned some of the things that uh, that have helped with that. Um, are there any other specific needs that you see within a, a Chinese church population uh, since you've been back at the Chinese church for the last couple of years? Talking about it and not being defensive has been really important. When we first came back and we started talking about mental illness, people would offer us unsolicited advice. Uh, they would say, have you tried this? Have you prayed more? Have you gone outside? Uh, we know somebody in China, you wanna go there, get help. You know, um, There was just a lot of unsolicited advice and we would just sort of grit our teeth and. And then if we had the right moment, we would say, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't an emotional problem. This isn't a spiritual problem necessarily. This is a physical problem. Mm-hmm. And of course, from the physical problem, it does affect our spiritual and emotional lives, but we've got to deal with it as a physical problem. Mm-hmm. And we just kept doing that. Um, and then we had the seminar, we had, it. Um, we've had our third one recently. So after the first seminar, we noticed that there was a lot less unsolicited advice. Uh, it really felt like the stigma was, was being greatly reduced. And as the last two years have progressed, it just feels that much further along. And, and so, you know, our church knows that Carol and I struggle with this. They pray for us. They, they're aware. And it's, it's something that I think whether it's a Chinese church or, you know, a Caucasian church or any ethnicity, it, that's what would be necessary. Um, but in particular with, with Asian communities where shame is a, a really debilitating and um, what do I say, it, it just cuts off the conversation mm-hmm. uh, because they don't, it's, it's shameful to talk about these things. Um, then again, you, you just have to like try to deal with it as not a shame issue, but as a health issue. Uh, dealing it with an issue that is saying, you know, this is for your good. This is not because you've done something bad. And, and you have to kind of reframe it for people um, because they've believed that all their lives. They've, they've been taught that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, shame could be about anything. I mean, it, it, we know like in, in mom's family, there's been shame about cancer and, and they wouldn't tell people. And, you know, you would think that is so odd, but again, it just goes to where you don't share with people about your problems. And if you do, they'll look down on you. Yeah. 
So, so I think talking in, in appropriate ways is, is so necessary. And, and, and that means that it might not be right to speak from the pulpit, but it'd be okay to speak in the counseling room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you really need to have some kind of uh, discernment of where to talk about mental illness. You just don't blurt it out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like even in just the short time of a couple of years, you've already noticed some progress, uh, whether it's people being a little bit more uh, understanding or empathetic or uh, developing some language to be able to talk about these sort of things. Are there any other markers that you've seen as you've done Enlightened and as you've talked with, with people more about it uh, in this context? And are there any other markers that you're hoping for in the future to continue to improve uh, through the Enlightened Ministry? I think that the, the markers in the, the Asian church are still dealing with fear. I think that if you can have a place in the church, like in our church, we have the support group, um, or people can come talk to me, that that is a place that marks that it's a safe place. So safety is a huge marker in mm -hmm. providing that as best as you can. Um, one of the things that our church has recently bought into is a media platform. And they, this media platform has mental illness, mental health workshops on it, has mental health uh, messages on it. And so people don't have to come to me. They don't have to come to anybody. They can go simply online and watch and listen and learn from um, experts in psychology, learn from pastors and understand better mental health. So I think providing places of safe safety, providing places of education. The marker in community is a little easier actually because it is easier to talk about mental health outside of a Asian setting. It is easier to talk about it in, a, in other words, in a Western setting. It, it is becoming a little more prominent you hear sports stars talk about their mental health problems. You hear movie stars, rock stars talk about their mental health problems, or sometimes you just see it on the news. Um, but <laughs> you know it's the there. Fact. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's a little easier on community. That's why I think other churches that have contacted us, it's been more meaningful sometimes with those that aren't Asian mm -hmm. um, because they're a little more educated on the topic. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's any future markers that, that we have set up. We, we've never set up Enlightened Mental Health Ministry as something that is fulfilling a, um, what I say, an eagle need or a, um, a personal goal. It, it's just been something that we see has been a blessing to share with other people. So we would be just as happy, at least I would. I don't know about mom, because mom loves doing it. But we'd be just as happy to, to give it to another group of people that mm -hmm. could take what we've done and, and improve it, make it better, make it stronger. So maybe that would be the marker that 
that somebody else wants to to take what we have and, and use it for something that is more um, progressive or broader than what mm-hmm. we have vision for. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one resource that um, besides just individual therapy that you've touched on is support groups and, and community. And you've uh, participated in, in uh, I think several, you know, um, some through NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Can you talk a little bit about what you have found helpful about going to groups like that? And for somebody who might not know what to expect, you know, what, what kinds of things can somebody going into something like that, you know, what might they be uh, expecting? Yeah, I, I highly recommend NAMI. I've, we've only had good experiences with them. When I was in Orange County, I was at part of a, a NAMI group that was part of what they call FaithNet. And so NAMI allows for um, faith groups to form their own NAMI group and they basically run the same program that NAMI does, but they use their Christian language or they use their faith language in it. So for example, when I would attend my first group, there were these 12 principles of support that we would say every week. And they're the same, the same dozen principles that we, we have today. And there are things that you just always can hold on to. There are things like we will see the person before the illness. Uh, There's things like, you know, we will never see somebody else's pain as less than our own. Uh, One that we always hold on to is we will never give up hope. And so just by saying these these truisms about facing mental illness and having a community that is there for you, that's not going to judge you, that's going to encourage you, that's going to even remind you if necessary that that there are these principles that are truisms about how mental illness can be attacked in a good way, uh, how it can be addressed and people can get better. I think that's so important. Going to a support group also isn't like giving up and saying, well, I'm just gonna have to live with this. It's believing like this principle that there's always hope. You learn more. The NAMI groups are also educational groups. So they bring in community people, they bring in doctors, they bring in policemen, they bring in, you know, um, law, um, I'm sorry, they bring in, they can even bring in politicians who are supportive and understanding of the issues of mental illness in the community. So that's extremely encouraging because you really get something that you can sink your teeth into and it's very user-friendly. Also, I think that, you know, what people can do is they can advocate. They can be an advocate for somebody else. Uh, so I began as an advocate for mom. And, and, and so what that means is if you know somebody who's going through a mental health crisis and you know them well enough that you could say, you know, can I take you to the doctor? Um, how can I pray for you? Um, how are you feeling today? And, and then do whatever you can to advocate for them, to, to stand up for them. For me, it was looking to find resources for mom, finding doctors, finding psychiatrists, learning more about bipolar. It was exhausting. It was difficult, but it helped. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, doing all that you can with whatever you have to, to improve a little bit. Uh, it, it's not an overnight thing. It, 
it, it's a long-term process. And being part of a community, being open with friends and family about it where you can. It's not safe to share it with all your friends. I've learned that. Sure. Uh, it's not safe to share it with all your family. And I've learned that too. Uh, but, but there are safe people and it's, it's important to let them know the mental health crisis that you're facing, whether it's yours or somebody else's that you love. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that goes right back to what you were talking about with, with loneliness, how it can be very lonely and just having one other person to go with you in those things can alleviate some of the burden, even if it doesn't take away all the, all the pain or the challenge. Uh, it, it, it helps to have just at least one other, one other person. Yeah. I mean, just yeah, one person makes a huge difference and being able to identify together, even if you're saying together, we both feel sort of hopeless right now, that in a way gives you support. It gives you a sense like, I am not alone. We don't want to be hopeless. We hope that we will find something better and we hope that it will come for both of us. I remember uh, in my support group the first time, um, and I would hear these stories of people, like there was the couple who led the group, uh, their son had bipolar. And so mom had bipolar and, and he wasn't getting any better. He, in fact, he was seemingly getting worse and mom was getting better. And, and she got so well, so that she was actually able to come to the group herself. And I remember feeling really guilty about this. And, and I said to the group, I, you know, I, I feel bad when I talk about how well Carol's doing. And I remember the leaders go, no, no, your story gives us hope. And where you might, I, what I might've expected was that, you know, um, that I'm sharing something and they're going, well, that's not true for me. Why isn't it true for me? Um, but instead, again, the support group is so caring, loving, understanding, and they're saying no. The fact that your wife is getting better gives us hope that our family members will get better too. So that's the kind of group you want to be in. Yeah. One that really does care about you and want you to be successful and you want them to be successful. And if they hurt, you hurt. If they're happy, you're happy for them. Mm-hmm. That, that's something that, that again, you know, is so important about sharing with others. Yeah. And I'd like to stay on the topic of, of hope for a little bit, because I think it can be challenging in exactly the way that you described, where two people struggling with similar issues might have very different outcomes. And so on the one hand, as, you're, as you and the group have identified that, that hope is so critical to even just the showing up process, you know, as part of those those twelve truisms that you hold together, uh, but on the other hand, hope can be such a challenging thing to find the right place for because you don't want to have a a cheap hope or or a hope that just is a a quick answer to make yourself feel better or make somebody else feel better. Um, so, how have you 
experienced um, or, or how have you journeyed through that process of finding a, a robust hope that isn't just a quick answer or a Band-Aid fix, um, something that has a little bit more weight to actually be meaningful while also being sensitive? Wow, that's excellent. Yeah, you don't want to give false hope. We don't want to give people false hope. We know that many people who are struggling with mental health issues will die with them. Um, my mom, as you know, died with dementia and she died because of she had dementia. So it, 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 we don't want to give this statement that everything's going to be okay. You know, um, it, it may not be, but you can be better. Um, if you are the one caring for somebody who has a mental health issue, you can be better. You can improve your, your mental health so you can take care of them. You are able to find hope in knowing that there is resources available to help you. And if you're the one dealing with mental illness, like mom and I have, we find hope in knowing that other people care and that we've seen little fragments of improvement in time. We can look back and remember, you know what, um, I may be depressed for, you know, right now. Um, I may have been depressed for the last year, but two years ago, I wasn't depressed. And that whole year was actually a pretty good year. Well, that might be my, my coming year. I've done it before. It can happen again. <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that's based on history, and it's something that's based on something that is, is helpful, uh, not harmful. So I think looking back and going, you know, I, I've done that. I remember um, when I was learning how to golf and um, I, I was given this book. I, I asked my golf teacher, um, what's the best book on golf you can recommend to me? And he, he offered me a book uh, that was written by a sports psychologist and in that, the, the psychologist talked about um, how the brain affects the performance that you have. And if you think negatively, you'll probably perform negatively. And so the thought was just simply, when you play a course that you've often played and you're at that hole, remember when you did something really good at that hole. Remember when you hit a good shot. Remember when you made a good save. Remember when you made a good putt. And and think about that. And so you go back and you think about the things you go, you know what, I did it before, it, it can happen again. And I think that's a genuine hope. It doesn't mean you're gonna do it. Uh, it may not even happen most of the time, but it has happened. And because it has happened, you can have hope. It can happen again. So I think looking to the truth of, of what you've experienced and looking to the people who have experienced them and learning from them as well and seeing in their example a, um, a, a bright spot in the dark, dark time. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, you don't want to give false hope. I think genuine hope can also be given medically because there are so many more advances in medicine and that needs that message needs to get out to people that it's okay for a Christian to take medicine for their brain, just like it's okay for a Christian to take medicine for their heart. It's okay for a Christian to take medicine for their 
you know, mental health well-being, just like it's important to take care of their physical life. So these things need to be dealt with from a, a pragmatic point of view, then you can have hope. When you when you deal with it as something that is um, out of the ordinary, you think it's abnormal, then, then well, why would there be hope? Because it's not normal, you know? Uh, when you realize that it's normal to face mental health problems, then it's normal to find help and hope in those mental health problems, just like other people have. So, yeah. So again, it, a lot of it, a lot of hope comes from from history and from empathy. I want to tackle another big topic with you based on on your own story, and that's uh, something that you mentioned before in terms of redemption, uh, that that in many ways uh, you've experienced some sort of redeeming aspect of what you've gone through. And so I, I can imagine that at the time you were in the midst, in the middle of going through some of those challenging mental issues, you probably weren't thinking about how God might use this, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later. But looking back, that is something that you you have or, or you can identify. So what have you learned about um, how some of your experiences can be redeemed? And how has that shaped the way that you um, approach mental health? Yeah. You know, as a pastor, one thing that I've, I've said to people many times is God's redemptive power is just as great as his creative power. And when something in creation doesn't go the way that God wanted it to go, he can redeem it and he can bring it back to the way he originally intended it to be. So, so that's the same thing true about our humanity. Um, we may not be what we want to be. We may never be fully everything that we want to be, but we can still become better. We, we can learn from our mistakes or we can learn from the mistakes of others, or in this case, we can learn from our pain. And, and so I think that it's redemptive for ourselves. And, and that's maybe the hardest thing of all. I, I never wake up in the morning going, I'm really glad I'm going through this because I know it's going to help somebody someday. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I never wake up in the morning going, you know what, I feel just horrible today. But you know, I'm so thankful for this, because I'll probably feel better a year from now. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I never wake up in the morning going, man, you know, this is just you know, ho so horrible. Uh, but I know that there's a purpose for it. Um, it, it those things don't necessarily provide um, this, this ability to endure. What does is believing that nothing is wasted mm -hmm. and that God's in the business of redeeming. God's in the business of repairing. God's in the business of saving. And so those things wouldn't even be needed if we weren't in such straits. And so knowing that our, our pain, even if you just use the word might, our pain might help somebody. 
mm-hmm. that's still hope. Yeah. I remember the story, um, which I believe was a true story of a mom who had terminal cancer and she was suffering greatly. And her children just were grieved at watching their mom suffer. And they asked her, why do you keep fighting so hard to live? And she said, because I don't know if tomorrow you might need me. And, and that was a sign of strength to me, of somebody who was willing to suffer for the good of somebody else. And I think that's really important. If you can at least say, I'm willing to suffer with the hope that this might help somebody someday, then it does give you strength. But if you look back, you can know that you do understand other people's pain because of your own. You can offer hope to somebody else because you're standing there alive and in fairly decent health (laughs) to be able to to speak to them intelligently, to offer them hope. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the Bible makes it really clear that whatever comfort we receive from God, we receive from him so that we can someday give it to others. We can know that, but we have to experience it. And the experience is usually nothing we want. And I think it's like I've told my therapist over and over again, if there was just a button I could push um, that would would help me to see that everything was worth it, I would push it. Um, because sometimes you just don't feel like there's anything visible that seems to make the pain worth it. It just seems so dark. Um, but, you know, it, it does get better um, because you can look to other times when it got better and your pain did help somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and one thing that I appreciate you integrating so well in, in our conversation is that it's it's not just it's spiritual and it's not just a physical thing that there, there are both things going on. Um, and I don't necessarily mean to make those things dichotomous or oppose those things. Um, but I think that sometimes there can be those separations made, whether it just is something that, oh, you just need to pray more uh, or, oh, you just need to take medicine. And so how have you, as uh, somebody who is trained in theology, but also very sensitive to understanding mental health, how have you come to integrate those things so that uh, you're able to have a more whole or complete picture of somebody's health beyond just the material and, and beyond just the immaterial? One is that instead of saying either or, um, it's both and. It's not either physical or spiritual, it's both. And you don't insult the other by saying it's not part of it. So, so when somebody has a, if they're a believer, if they're a Christian and they're having a mental health problem and, and they wanna know, did I do something wrong? Am I being punished by God? Is there um, sin 
that is is causing this, um, then you know I can try to answer them theologically, but I can also try to help them understand that there's a physiological aspect to their mental health problems. There, there is a need for medicine. There's a need for doctors. And, and this is something that can be very helpful. So it's not making one less important than the other. It, it could be more physical at some time and it could be more spiritual at some time, but the two are more than, more times than not, they're related. I think that the second way that we integrate physical and spiritual is through spiritual disciplines. And I found this personally necessary for myself so that if I'm having a, um, a hard day I'm, and I'm, I'm feeling really bad about myself, let's say, and I'm starting to feel depressed, um, by, by spending some time in the word, by spending some time alone with God, it can be through a morning quiet time of reading the Bible and just being silent, or it can be for a walk, or it can be going to the beach. Um, but I spend time thinking about what is God saying to me in this? And I'm not very, you know, proficient at this. It, it takes a lot of effort. Um, and by effort, I mean, it takes a lot of repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that I have to revisit who I am in God and who God says I am, that I'm his beloved child. So if I'm dealing with depression, maybe what I'm depressed over is physiological. And it's like, like I told you, I fell on the stairs <laughs> yesterday, so my back's really hurting. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm feeling a little depressed because my back's really hurting. Um, but I know that will get better. Mm-hmm. But if there's something that is emotional and something that is longstanding, spiritually reconnecting, refocusing, and putting back the priorities is very necessary for me. Mm-hmm. That helps me to separate what is physical and what's spiritual. And having a spiritual director helps me to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I think is very important to be able to separate and to appreciate both our physical body and and our spiritual nature mm-hmm. um, by we honor them by by spending time going well, why is your nature hurting why why are you hurting so badly you know don't just dismiss it and go because it's because you don't have enough faith mm-hmm. you know that that that's so trite and and it, it's insulting you know even to god i think because because God wants to use, he wants to speak to us in our pain. Now, if God wants to tell me, you know, hey, you're just feeling sorry for yourself, you know, you need to be more mature, then that's good, right? I need to hear that. But I don't want to hear that if I'm not honest with God. And I'm not ready to hear what he has to say by being, if I don't be honest with him, then I'm probably not ready to hear what he's going to say. Just like physically, if you have cancer, you don't want the doctor to go, you know what, you're fine. You know, come in, come back a year from now. You know, and and the and then somebody goes, Well, why didn't you tell him he had cancer? And the doctor goes, Well, you know, I, I didn't want to ruin his day. Um, 
you know, just, <laughs> obviously, no doctor, good doctor's going to ever do that, right? Yeah. They're going to tell you the truth. So physically, same thing. If, if you're hurting because there's a physical problem, there's something happening in the life of somebody you love, there's something very tangible, then you spend time alone. You begin to separate and you go, you know what? This is real. This mm-hmm. is okay. Yeah. Of course, I'm going to hurt. Um, and so the third way I think we separate things is therapy. Um, and and just going to a, a licensed and trained therapist who who can help you to discern whether or not you really are struggling with a mental issue, an emotional issue, or if it's just something that people go through. Um, and 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 how do we go through them? You know, how do we? Because you might go through something exactly the same as me, and you might come out of it going. No deal, no big deal. Whereas I might be really depressed and discouraged. So everybody's different. Mm-hmm, so I think, mm-hmm. you know, going to somebody and talking to somebody can help us to be a little more um, circumspect and see ourselves more clearly and getting some good advice. So I think those are three ways that I, I would suggest that we, you know, learn to separate and at the same time unite the physical and the spiritual. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time talking about this relationship that we have, whether to our own mental health or to other people with mental health. Um, but as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, the other relationship that uh, is important to us as Christian, and that is our relationship with God. Um, and so I'm curious to hear how has your journey with mental health impacted your uh, the way that you relate to God? Um, the kinds of uh, ways that you speak to God? How has your experiences with mental health uh, shaped the way that you relate to God? Out of all your questions, I think that's the hardest one. Because when I'm experiencing my mental um, struggles, I'm not thinking right about God. Um, One of the things that really struck me about mental illness and strikes me is how how devious mental illness is because it affects the brain. And therefore, the brain can no longer think correctly about even treating itself. If you have a healthy brain and your, you know, your foot's really hurting, you go, okay, well, you know, I better go see the foot doctor. Uh, but as you know, and I've heard it over and over again, people with mental problems, they don't see that they have a mental problem. And therefore they go and they, you know, they blame it on other people. And I think that's what I struggle with with God is I, I blame him for it. Um, so that's the downside. My mental struggles have caused me to doubt about God, about his love for me. They've caused me to doubt about my own goodness, my worthiness. They've they've caused me to doubt about whether I have enough faith or if I deserve what I'm going through. Um, That's the downside. But the plus side is that I have to answer those questions based on truth not on feelings. And I don't find the answers in a 
a book on psychology. I only find those answers in the Bible. And, and, and so I see, for example, the Apostle Paul going through heartache after heartache, and he becomes a very tender man. And he, he cares about other people because of his own heartaches. I see Peter going through pain after pain after pain. And because of that, he looks forward to eternity. And so he, he tells us and he reminds us, this world's not our home. You know, there is another place we live. The writer of Hebrews does the same thing. Hebrews chapter 11. I love that chapter because it's known as the hall of faith. But, you know, half of the people in that chapter, they got rewarded for their faith. They, they got, you know, they got healed or they got, you know, a miracle happened. But the other half didn't. And, and they died and they suffered and they, they went through terrible persecution. Uh, they died terrible deaths. There's one thing that they all share in common, and that is that in heaven, it'll all be made clear, and they'll all be made complete. And I think that that has been the greatest challenge, both the help, but also the reality of my struggle, is that if we truly believe that everything in this world matters, it matters to God, then we will find out in heaven how important it really was. We may not find out on earth. We may not find out on this side. So mental illness has increased my ability to, to accept the mysterious, um, to accept the inexplainable, um, to like your, your podcast, you know, hard questions, no answers. It, it accepts that, that there are hard questions in life that you don't always get satisfying answers. It has also moved me to places where I've experienced so much blessing in my spiritual life. I've, I, every high I've had in my spiritual life has happened after a low. Everyone, every if you were to ask me, what were the high points of my Christian life? They all happened after deep lows in my life. So, so it, it has greatly affected um, my, my, my spiritual journey. Um, I, I'm a melancholy person. And so I, I, that's no excuse, um, but it is something that I recognize. And I have to fight against that because um, I know that God wants me to be joyful. He doesn't, you know, there's no Bible verse that commands us to be melancholy, but there's plenty <laughs> that command us to rejoice always. Yeah. So, um, so I, I am greatly challenged. I think it is just humbling because it's humiliating um, that I'm a pastor and I, I struggle sometimes more, I think, than the people I, I met recently, somebody who I just, was so encouraged by. Um, she's going through so much pain and loss and heartache. Um, and she said, I'll lose everything, but I'll never lose God. Mm. And, um, and she goes, I will always love him. And, and so I find in other people lessons to my own spiritual life. Um, so I think that it's increased my questions. 
it's made them harder in a way because there's no easy answers. At the same time, it's led to the, the best moments of my spiritual life. Um, and, you know, they tend to be a lot shorter than the, the difficult times. <laughs> but yeah. they also stand out as, as, as light in, in this darkness of, of, of struggle. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I, yeah, I, I knew that I wanted to have you on. I, I didn't know how I was going to invite you onto this podcast, but I'm glad that I saved the best for last. <laughs> Not, no disrespect to any of the people I've had on before, but <laughs> um, it's thicker than water. <laughs> I have a question for you, Gabe. What's that? Um, so how much of your family's struggle with mental illness played into you becoming a therapist, into you going into psychology? Yeah, I would say for my own story, I don't know if a whole lot of it played into my initial decision, but by virtue of how things have played out since making that decision, uh, I think that it's inextricably linked. <laughs> uh, now it, you know, now I, now it's inescapable. And I think that when I was initially contemplating psychology, I was primarily focused on, you know, what skill set can I acquire to help other people and to help churches. And so I, I, I didn't even really know the extent to which our family's own mental issues could really come into play and uh, sort of that, that redemptive story that you were talking about. But I think the, the more that I got into psychology and the more that I went in that direction, the more inescapable it was that our family story has shaped the way that I uh, approach psychology, both as a practitioner, uh, but I think also as somebody who, who tries to practice what I preach and, and to embody the kinds of uh, things that I'm, I'm working with patients and clients on. So yeah, I know that's not super specific, but I, I think that at, at this point in my training and career, I, I can't uh, separate the two out anymore. And, and I, I so appreciate you asking me to be on your podcast. I, I was extremely thrilled when you asked. <laughs> and very honored and, and felt so loved when you said that, you know, you wanted to end with me, hoping that, you know, that would be um, an honor to me, but also a blessing to your podcast. And it, it certainly is. And I think your story is indeed, you know, what we've just been talking about. Not everything is clear, but we can definitely see that there is a purpose in all that we go through. Mm -hmm. And we may not find the meaning for some time, but there is meaning and we, we need to hold on to that. Yeah. So, yeah. So proud of you. Love you <laughs> so much. Yep. Uh, love thanks for too. honoring me for letting me part of this. Thank you for tuning in to the first season of the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. 
It's been so amazing to journey with you through these tough questions, and I can't wait to do it again in Season 2. That's right, I've already started working on Season 2, so stay tuned for the new episodes coming out in 2021. For more information about the HQ&A podcast, visit drgablow.com. That's D-R-G-A-B-E-L-O-W-E.com. Additional educational materials recommended by my guests can be found under the podcast tab. And for updates, news, and behind the scenes, follow HQ&A podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HQ&A POD. HQ&A podcast is independently produced by Gabriel Lowe. Music is Cocktail Fun by Sock Music 331, found on Pond 5. And logo design is by Kenny Lowe. Thank you for joining me on the journey of no answers.